0: To my mommy's podcast.
1: This episode is sponsored by Fabletics, affordable, cute, and versatile athletic wear. Founded by Kate Hudson, this brand has hundreds of original and cute styles of athletic wear. They're also revolutionizing how the athletic wear industry it works by helping women find gear that fits them perfectly. And here's how it works: after you take a super quick 60 second style quiz you receive a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own style and body type. This takes the guesswork out of what styles are most suitable for you. And before I forget, Fabletics is offering listeners of this podcast an incredible deal that you won't want to miss. You can get two pairs of leggings for only $24, which is a $99 value when you sign up to be a VIP. And that's literally half the price of just one sports bra from some of the other brands, and you get two pairs of leggings. Just go to Fabletics.com forward slash Wellness Mama to take advantage of the deal now. Again, that's F A B L E T I C S dot com forward slash Wellness Mama to get two pairs of leggings for only. $24. They also offer free shipping on all orders over $49. They do have international shipping available, and there's no commitment when you purchase your first order. Plus, they have a workout guarantee, meaning that you can sweat it out in those clothes for 45 days, and if they don't perform, you can return them for a full refund. This podcast is brought to you by Genexa, the first ever and only line of organic and non-GMO medicines. Their patented system lets them create medicines that don't have artificial dyes or fillers and that are free of preservatives and all common allergens. I pretty much keep their entire line on hand as they have something for everything from colds and flu to leg cramps and pain to allergies and sleep problems. And the best part is, my kids love the taste of their organic formula and I love that they are effective and free of the junk. You can shop their whole line of organic and non-GMO medicines by going to genexa.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code wellness for 20% off your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code Wellness for 20% off of your order. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I knew I wanted to have today's guest on the show when I sat at the same table as him at an event, and we geeked out about pantothenic acid and kinase and genes and a lot of other fun topics. And I'm here with Chris Masterjohn, who is a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut. He has served as a postdoctoral research associate in the Comparative Biosciences Department of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. And as assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York, which is all really amazing because he's still very young and he's already accomplished all of that. He now spends his time researching and producing some of the highest quality nutritional information out there, all in a way that's easy to understand and absolutely fascinating. And I'll link to it in the show notes, but definitely check out his Nutrition 101 course on his Facebook page and his testing nutritional status, The Ultimate Cheat Sheet which helps you decode your own body. But we're going to jump into all of that today. So Chris, welcome and thanks for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: I can't wait to jump into so many topics with you, but just for a little bit of background, can you just tell us how you got into this area of nutritional research?
0: Sure. Well, there, I guess there's two aspects to, back, to the background. One is why I kind of cared about it at all. And then the other is like, how did I get into exactly where I am now? Um, in terms of how I got interested in nutrition, it was largely a result of initially growing up around my mom who had her own health struggles. So when I was a teenager, my mom had fibromyalgia and she was often in so much pain at night that not only she didn't sleep, but I didn't sleep because I was you know, across the apartment from her or the house, depending on where we were living. And she was just in so much pain that she was you know, moaning through the night. And I watched her... Go through a journey where she experimented with many things, and it's hard to really put a finger on exactly what worked. But macrobiotics was part of it, yoga was part of it, Tai Chi was part of it, herbs were part of it, lots of different things. And whatever it was, she no longer (laughs) is moaning in pain every night. I mean, the chronic pain is largely a thing of the past. And so, for me to see the power of nutrition and diet and lifestyle so early on made me just quite fascinated in what it could do for me and other people. And that curiosity got me into trouble. So I experimented with a number of different diets. The zone diet was an early one, but then I read a book called Diet for a New America that convinced me that veganism was the ultimate solution to my problems and the problems of the world, especially on the fronts of making the environment better helping animals and helping my own health and on the vegan diet my teeth fell apart my mental health fell apart my digestion fell apart two of the biggest events well one was an event so the biggest event single event was when i went to the dentist and i found out that i needed over that i had over a dozen cavities and that i needed two root canals in a single session and the biggest sort of long term development over that course was that the anxiety problems that originally crept up when i was a teenager became so aggravated that they they were a nuisance before at this point they were really just tearing at the roots of my well-being and my being able to hold myself together as a human being the other development that wasn't really a specific event, but was just a development over time was that the anxiety problems that had originally crept up when I was a teenager became so extreme that they really started tearing at the fabrics of my life and at my ability to hold myself together as a human being. So as an example of what I would go through, I would be so afraid to eat the food in my house afraid that it was tampered with in some way that it was drugged or poisoned, that I would examine everything that I ate for some evidence of that. And if I didn't find it, I would just continue examining it until I had, I don't know, say ripped a hole in the packaging or something like that, that convinced me that maybe that hole was there before. And it was just completely, uh, paralyzing and debilitating. And I would, you know, be angry at myself for not being able to eat anything, just throw the food across the room in anger. And there were times where, and the, the crazy thing is that I don't really have much memory of this, but I was talking to my mom recently about it. And during that time, she told me that she had brought me to the emergency room numerous times during the peaks of panic attacks that I was having. And it took me a lot of effort to even start to remember a little bit of that. So my memory of some of the worst things that happened to me in that time is actually really, really bad. And all of this changed one day when I was I was an undergraduate majoring in history, and I was working in the undergraduate dining hall. And my boss at that time was into drinking raw milk. And he had a pamphlet that came from the farm that he got his milk from that talked about the work of Weston Price. Weston Price was, an early dental researcher, and he inadvertently became a pioneer of nutritional anthropology. He had studied all across the world traditional diets that people, the groups of healthy people were eating before modern foods came in the picture, and he documented the nutritional transition all across the globe from these traditional diets to what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce. The white flour, white sugar, canned goods, syrups, and sugary things. And one of the – and of course, the, the sort of like that book in a sentence is that all these traditional diets, despite their great diversity, were all strongly protective of, of not only tooth decay, but mental and physical health in every way. And the transition to these modern foods, as we might expect today if we have any sense of, of health – was associated with degeneration and onset of all these degenerative diseases that we take for granted today. And I think what really struck me and what was really transformative to me was actually what the traditional diets contained that Price had identified as so protective. So he especially emphasized that these diets had foods that were rich in fat-soluble vitamins, and that these groups went out of their way to procure. And these foods were things that I wasn't eating when I was an omnivore, and my friends who were omnivores weren't eating, and they were animal foods. So it was like I was at a disadvantage because I was vegan, but I had been at a disadvantage before because I wasn't emphasizing these foods. These were foods like organ meats, bones, Uh, small animals, like small insects and small frogs where they were so small that you would eat them with all the organs, eggs, shellfish, dairy products with the fat. So, you know, I I had some dairy products and I had some eggs, but I wasn't eating organ meats and bones and shellfish on a regular basis or any basis in, in some cases like with organ meats. And so I started incorporating the principles that I had learned from Price's writings. And I underwent this dramatic transformation that is still mind-boggling to me to this day. So first of all, the tooth decay stopped. So that, that's great. But what I was actually trying to heal my teeth, um, I was not trying or expecting to heal my mental health. And the point at which I realized that everything had changed was one day when I was working in the dining hall and I watched this guy pick up a stack of plates and take a plate from underneath that stack. And I look at the guy like he's kind of weird. I think to myself, what's wrong with that guy? Why didn't he just take the plate off the top? And then I take a few steps, maybe five or six seconds pass. And all of a sudden, it comes back to me that a few months before, I had always done that, every time I took a plate. And when I would take a glass to drink water, I would spend 20 minutes looking at all the clean glasses, looking for a glass that was clean enough for me to drink out of. And so somehow, not only did my mental health completely undergo a revolution, but it happened in such a way that I didn't even notice it. So to this day, I really don't know whether everything was fixed in one minute and I forgot what I had been like before, one minute ago at that point, or if it was gradual over the course of three months and I just gradually lost the memory of how bad my mental health had been in proportion to the healing that took place over those three months, I really don't know because I have no memory of the actual transition. I just remember being borderline crazy and being completely mentally healthy, like a completely new person. So that was a really extraordinarily powerful experience for me to go through. And I wanted to pay it forward. That led me initially to pursue a a medical degree, um, but coming out, graduating with a history degree, I needed a lot of science courses to make that happen. And as I was taking the science courses, a few things kind of collided. One was that my co-workers in, well, I had started writing about nutrition, and so the people that I was working with when I was writing about nutrition, and also my professors were really telling me that I had the brain for research. The second thing was that I really fell in love with the molecules and the biochemical pathways and all those tiny things that we can't see behind the curtain, and I really fell in love with playing around with theories and ideas about how those things worked. And in my writing at that time, I was reading hundreds of scientific papers and coming up with new scientific hypotheses that I knew no one would research unless I went into research, and that's what led me down the research path. So I got my PhD in nutritional sciences instead of going to medical school. I as you mentioned in the in the intro, I Graduated with that and then went to do a postdoc. And then I went through the full-time tenure track faculty course. And after spending five or six years in academia, I realized a couple things about myself and about what I was really passionate about. And even though I I really do have a research-oriented brain, I'm just, um, I'm far more I'm far more interested in being able to work creatively with whatever I feel are the biggest problems to solve and really connecting dots with what's needed in ways that I can't really do in academia. Academia really pushes you to specialize in one very narrow focus and I really want more freedom than I would get with that kind of narrow focus and Uh, Personally, I just really love, I have a very, very visceral need to be in control of the big picture of how I'm conducting my life. And although in academia, you get probably tremendously more freedom than the average person would ever want to take on because of the associated responsibility, it's not enough for me. So, um, so that brings me to where I am now, just operating independently and trying to find new ways to immerse myself in the science and come up with new ways to translate that science into practical things that people can use to help them on their journey towards vibrant health.
1: I love that. And that's when I knew I had to interview you on the podcast, because in just in talking to you, I realized I would agree with your professors. You have an amazing, brilliant mind for research, but it's that creativity key that is so important. I think together, those are your superpower because you can take these really complex topics and really delve into them, but then make them digestible for anybody to learn from. And even more so I could see your passion for doing that. I didn't realize it's interesting. I had a similar story with learning about fat-soluble vitamins thanks to a couple of cavities. And since I got that fixed and like worked out on my diet, I've never had a cavity since, and neither have any of my kids. So that's been a little bit of our story as well, I'm curious, part of what's so amazing about what you talk about is that it's about figuring out your own personalized nutrition and health plan because I think there's so much great information out there, but the real test is learning what actually works for our own bodies and our own lifestyles. And so I have some questions in a little while about some specifics that I want to go deep on. But before we do, I'm curious if there are any things that you think have widespread application that are almost somewhat close to universally applicable.
0: So I think that the principles of individualization are incredibly powerful and incredibly important and very central, but they operate within this very, very big box. So we kind of have like a... We kind of have a playground where we can go in, it's so such a big playground that we can go in many different directions and spend our time in many different places, but there are boundaries around that playground. And so, you know, one of the principles that we could say is that virtually anyone would greatly benefit by cutting out refined foods from their diets. So white flour and white sugar and things like that, uh, virtually anyone would benefit from cutting out highly heated oils, especially the industrial oils, just because like if you go to a restaurant, and you're eating fried foods, you have a dual problem there where the the simple fact that the food is fra- is deep fried in oil and that that oil has probably been reheated a number of times means that there's gonna be a lot of toxic junk in that food no matter what the oil was, but there's a double whammy because unless you go to a very specialized restaurant that is very interested in marketing at a specific type of health consumer, then it's almost guaranteed that the oils are going to be as low quality as you could possibly get. And so, cutting out those those fried foods is um, almost universally going to be beneficial. You could probably extend that to say that unless you're an extraordinarily avid label reader, you should probably just avoid packaged foods that have oils in them because even in a health food store, I would say that like ninety. I, I was just in a health food store and I was looking at seaweed snacks, and I was like, "Man, I could really go for some seaweed snacks right now." And I'm looking at all the seaweed snacks and I'm like, "They all have cottonseed oil or canola oil in them." This is an org- organic health food store in my local neighborhood, and I'm like, "Okay, I'll look for the olive oil one." Then I, so I, I find after I'm looking at the whole shelf, I find the olive oil one, and then I look at it and it turns out that. There's more canola oil than olive oil in it. And so, um, I mean, unless unless you're really doing your homework to select highly specific products based on the types of oils that they have, you'd be better off just avoiding any packaged foods that have oils in them at all. And in fact, if you're going to go buy packaged foods, if you could just avoid ones that have refined sugar, refined flour, things you can't pronounce and any oils <laughs> and then that'll probably help you narrow down the bunch quite a bit. So there are some there are some rules like this. I I think that I guess those are obvious ones. There's probably a lot of people who I, who would maybe disagree with me on a tremendous amount of what I say and would still agree with that stuff just because that's so 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 obvious uh to anyone who spends much time in the health sphere. I think there are a few other principles that aren't, well, I think, you know, you asked about universal. So I think universal more or less ends there, but I think we could take ones before we get to individualizing, we could say, okay, maybe not universal, but what is a good baseline for everyone to start from before they start individualizing? And I think that's where we could make a few additional rules. So Examples of some of these rules would be uh, try to get enough protein, but diversify your proteins among the different possible protein sources, so include some meat in, like include some red meat, include some poultry, include some fish, include some dairy, include some eggs, f- include some shellfish, and you start to individualize that principle when you say, "Well, some people are allergic to shellfish and they can 't have them, some people can 't consume dairy for various reasons, et etc, et etc but diversifying across that branch is it's a very good starting place because the more because each even though you might think of these as protein sources and they are each of these different protein sources has a different profile of vitamins and minerals and so if you don't diversify the more you restrict the more you have to micromanage your vitamin and mineral intake but if you do diversify and you say I'm just going to eat from the whole spectrum of this menu, then I can get I have more liberty to not micromanage and not try not spend a lot of effort figuring out where I'm missing things, and then you could take that same diversification principle and you could say from your carbohydrate sources diversify across the whole grains, starchy tubers, legumes, fruits and then you can start taking some of those out so like you know paleo people won't eat the whole grains often paleo people won't eat legumes either i think you're better off taking grains out than you are legumes just because of their nutritional profile but the more the more carbohydrate sources you take out of those categories or the more you just restrict carbohydrate intake then the more you need to start micromanaging and making sure that you're getting your vitamins and minerals in. Another pretty good rule would be eat several cups of vegetables a day, try to diversify across the color spectrum of reds, oranges, yellows, and greens especially, and put a special emphasis on making sure at least a cup of those are coming from dark green vegetables so again, you you can modify that rule, but it's a very good starting place to make sure that you're getting your vitamins and minerals in. And I think that one of the nutrients that is most narrowly distributed in the food supply would be calcium. And so I think that a good rule of thumb for calcium is to try to shoot for about a thousand milligrams a day and you can get that from three servings of dairy products, three servings of edible bones, or some other foods. And I would kind of look at it like if you're not combining two, or if you're not combining three servings of dairy or edible bones, then you should start looking at the specific foods that you're taking in because although you can get adequate calcium from other foods, within the context of a modern diet and the foods that are available in the grocery store you have a pretty narrow scope of what you would be picking from to get those other things so we can we can talk about those details later if you want and then i would say try to use the bones and skin of the animal products that you consume and try to use the animal uh, the organs of the animal products you consume so our ancestors, if they killed an animal, they would consume mostly the whole thing. They're not going to throw away wasteful parts. But they also knew that there were valuable nutrients that were in the bones that weren't in the muscle meat and knew that there were valuable nutrients that were in the organs and not the muscle meat. And I think most of us aren't slaughtering our own animals. So it's very difficult to get the sense of what is proportional. But as a rule of thumb, for most people who are coming from a from a standard diet, aren't consuming any of these foods. And so if you want to get your feet wet, I would say consuming liver once a week would be the most important way to start consuming organ meats. Working some heart and kidney into your diet would be the next best step. And in fact, heart is probably the easiest, even though it doesn't have the same value that liver does, uh, it does have value to get heart in. I think heart is fairly easy to consume just based on the taste and texture is much closer to regular meat. Um, And then bones to use uh, bone broth or make soups and gravies out of bones um, or to consume edible bones in the context of canned fish are all great ways to start getting into using bones. And then finally, I would say we should all put some emphasis on getting digestive support at Probably all of our meals, so to eat something uh, even if it's a little bit just something fermented or something like ginger or bitter tastes and other types of pro digestive properties um, to make sure that all those other nutrients were actually digesting and assimilating because um, not you know doing all that work to make sure there's a lot of nutrients in your diet doesn't really do you any good if they're not. Being digested and absorbed properly, so I think maintaining a, a healthy digestion is is very key so those aren't universal but they're I guess we could say they're universal in the sense that that's a universal starting place and then we could move on from that foundation to start individualizing for people
1: got it and I want to circle back to calcium in just a minute because I think it's a, a really important one but before we do just a clarifying question so when it comes to organ meats I get asked a lot if supplements like dehydrated Organ meats work the same way because a lot of people seem to have trouble stomaching the taste or the texture of organ meats. So, what's your take on that?
0: My take on that is I hope so. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I think it would be amazing to crowdfund some research into this. I think one of the most desperate needs for research in this community is actually getting a handle on that. What I do know is that generally across the board dehydrating something as long as it's done in a gentle way is the best way to preserve the nutrients in something and that's largely because most chemical reactions are greatly enhanced in the presence of water and that's true like if you're cooking something the cooking something in wet heat is generally far more destructive than cooking something in dry heat and it's also true when something's just sitting on the shelf. Dehydrating something is a great way to prevent chemical reactions from taking place even if it's in the freezer. Dehydrating something is a great way to, you know, s- certain things aren't as stable in the freezer uh, as other things are and and dehydrating just across the board is is actually what I should say is dehydrating and keeping it on the shelf is often better than freezing for certain things. In the case of liver, I think freezing is great because probably the nutrient that is most unstable in the freezer is folate, and because the liver is so high, actually I don't know why the reason is, but for some reason, and I'm assuming it's just because of the 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 protective substances in the liver, for some reason, if you put liver in the freezer and you put vegetables in the freezer within 6 months all the folate is gone from most of the vegetables and all the folate is still there with the liver. So my take is I think so and I hope so, but I don't know. And I think what you want to do is you want to consume the organ meats in the in the ways that are as natural as you can stomach. So I think it's better to freeze the liver What some people do is they cut up the liver into little bite-sized pieces and freeze those and then take them out and swallow them whole or maybe some people chew them up, I don't know. I think that's better than using the dehydrated liver capsules, but I think a lot more people are going to use the dehydrated liver capsules than are going to do that. And so if it's not appealing to you to do that, then I would use the capsules. The best thing is probably the least practical thing, which is to consume the organ freshly after the animal was slaughtered. And none of us can do that. So I think just get it as, as fresh and as natural as you can.
1: Got it. That makes sense. And it would seem like taking the supplement is better than nothing in most cases.
0: Oh well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Take, yeah. Taking the liver supplement is tremendously better than not getting any liver, for sure.
1: Got it. Okay. And one more clarifying question related to protein. You mentioned varying it. And I feel like the amount of protein that we should consume is a subject of pretty hot debate in the nutritional world with everything from the extreme saying like, you know, two grams per pound of lean body mass per day, all the way down to people saying we hardly need any protein at all. So I'm curious what you're seeing in the research of how much, like how do we even figure out how much protein we need?
0: Well, uh, I would say that half a gram to a gram of protein per pound of body weight is what... Most people should be targeting, and that if you and that base, basically double that if you count your weight in kilograms. Um, but so a, a gram to two grams per kilogram of body weight, a half a gram to a gram per pound of body weight. There are a variety of ways of looking at how much protein that we need. I would say there's far more data on body composition than there is on anything else, and those numbers are mainly from body composition. And body composition is not just about physique and aesthetics. Body composition is also about metabolic health and even longevity. So some of the anti-protein stuff comes out of longevity circles where the primary evidence is really on things like in animal experiments or, or, you know, a lot of longevity research actually comes from worms, (laughs) but uh, they're looking at, they're looking at longevity in the context of a highly controlled environment where the animal just sort of like doesn't do anything and then just dies for some reason at the end of the life. And that's not how longevity plays out in humans. So one of the, I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but there's in elderly people one of the key things that happens before someone dies is they fracture their hip. And you know, heart disease and cancer are leading causes of death, but hip fracture is up there if you just assume that when, that many of the deaths that happen in the year after someone fractures their hip are somehow causally related to the hip fracture. And if you look at how protein affects those things, you're looking at at bone loss, you're looking at muscle mass loss, and you're looking at neurological coordination issues. Um, I don't know about the neurological coordination, but certainly the bone mass and the muscle mass are tremendously better on higher protein intakes. And if you were to assume that protein was anti-longevity, but pro-performance in youth. Um, you know, so it makes you stronger, it makes you look better, all things that you care about when you're very young, but then it makes you die earlier. That would kind of seem to suggest that you should eat more protein when you're young and you should eat less and less protein as you get older. But all of the data on that indicate that the older you get, the more protein you need in terms of preventing muscle mass loss. Um, and probably preventing bone loss as well. And muscle mass isn't just about strength and joint health and movement. It's also about metabolic health. So the less muscle mass you have, the more likely you are to become insulin resistant and develop blood sugar problems, for example. So I think that optimizing body composition according to what we know is healthy is not just vanity it's not just aesthetics, it's a real health-related endpoint, and I think it, you know, in the absence of data on many other things we would want to see, I do think that we should use that data. I would also say that protein is very important for other things that we do have some data on. For example, glutathione is the master antioxidant of the cell, and it's a very important detoxification agent in the liver. And glutathione levels require probably the lower end of what I had cited for protein amounts. So you you make glutathione from the protein in your diet and it takes about a half a gram per pound of body weight to maximize glutathione synthesis. So I think that range of a half a gram to a gram per pound of body weight is pretty good for available metrics of health and if your focus is body composition, you want to focus on the higher end of that range. If your focus is not body composition, then you can get away with going toward the lower end of that range. But when I say your focus is body composition, I don't just mean, do you want to look like a bodybuilder? I mean things like, do you need to lose weight? So, For example, overweight and obesity are significant factors in disease processes. When you lose weight, you need more protein to to keep your your lean muscle mass, and one of the things that you're trying to do when you lose weight is not just lose the fat but lose the fat and retain the lean mass and um, And that's not just your muscle protein, it's also your internal organs and your bones. Um, so the healthy way to lose weight is to retain all your lean mass and one of the most important ways to retain all your lean mass is to eat enough protein when you're losing weight. So I think that for any kind of body composition goal, whether it's athletic or it's aesthetic or it's health related, such as losing weight healthfully, you want to aim towards the higher end of what I had cited being around a, one gram per pound of body weight.
1: That makes perfect sense. And it seems also really important for those of us with kids who are in those growing phases or going to go through puberty when there's an increased demand. Like, it's great that I think to learn these things when your kids are still in those early ages so that you can help them optimize. the future by knowing these factors. And I also find it interesting um, in, so I'm a doula, and when I've worked with midwives and doctors, they talk about women especially needing more protein when they're pregnant, which even prevents things like preeclampsia if it's done correctly. And so there definitely seems to be an important connection there. And I think you explained it really, really well. Um, Another area that's especially applicable, I think, to moms is the calcium issue, especially because that's one area that mainstream lobbying does a pretty good job of letting us know that we need you know, from TV, it looks like you only get it from calcium, and I love that you mentioned fish in a can, which is one of my favorite sources. But I would love if you could talk us through calcium and how to know how much we need, and also, aren't there some things that need to be synergistic with it, like vitamin K and magnesium? From what I'm remembering.
0: Okay, so the um, so if you look at the RDAs for calcium, they are equivalent to three glasses of milk for most adults. They're equivalent to four glasses of milk. For teenagers who are going through the uh, puberty-associated growth spurt, and they're uh, equivalent to four glasses of milk for men over the age of seventy, women over the age of fifty, and and not women who are pregnant or lactating. I I was I was thinking it was increased for for pregnant lactating women. and It's not, but I but I want. I want to. I'll lead into why I think we should strongly think about um, calcium differently in pregnancy and lactation after we lay down a few principles. So there's a few things that make this a little hard to tease out. A lot of people look at this and they say, "Well, if we look at um, if we're looking at the RDAs, we're looking at this powerful dairy lobby that wants to make sure we're drinking a lot of milk. And there have been plenty of human societies where where people were not drinking a lot of milk, and they still were thriving. And so no one can get this amount of calcium without getting milk. And therefore, you see, like in the vegan crowd, you see in the paleo crowd, and just the sort of anti-corporate lobby crowd ideas circulating that we need a lot less calcium than what's what's there in the RDA. I think one of the things that is interesting about this is I think we actually have a lot more data on our calcium requirements than almost any other food. So like, in the case of growing children there's actually a lot of data in children about how much calcium that we need there 's a lot of data for the age adjustments both in puberty and in, in, in older people to see how calcium needs increase over time. One of the problems though is well, let me back up and address and address that first point so even though calcium in our society is mostly found in milk, calcium. Generally, if you look at any other society, you're going to find that whatever society it is, in, in terms of traditional diets, they've found unique ways of fulfilling their calcium requirements. So in dairying societies, that's pretty straightforward. But if you go up into the Arctic Circle where, there, for example, the traditional Inuit diet, there's no cows there, there's no dairy animals there. And there's not many plant foods, and where they're getting their calcium from is essentially from bone meal powder. They are taking fish bones, and they're freeze drying them and pulverizing them, and they're consuming powdered bone to get their calcium. Go across the world to the Hadza, who are hunter-gatherers in Africa, and they consume a plant called the baobab that has a lot more calcium than milk does, and it constitutes twenty percent of their diet. In fact, the ethnographers who have studied them have said that baobab is essentially a food group for them. And so you can you know you can look at plant foods or you can look at animal foods like bones. Uh, even in non dairy cultures, the calcium intakes are uh, are often quite high and generally hitting that thousand milligram per day mark. Nevertheless, there are some things that make it difficult to study the issue. One of those is that vitamin D and calcium cooperate with one another in ways that essentially lead to vitamin D and calcium kind of being on the same team. And the more vitamin D you get, the less calcium you need, and the more calcium you get, the less vitamin D you need within a certain within a certain range. So you you can't get zero calcium and just make up for it with lots of vitamin D. You can't get zero vitamin D and just make up for it with lots of calcium. But if you're in a relatively healthy window, it's probably the case that you could vary your calcium requirement up or down by the equivalent of one and maybe even two glasses of milk based on your vitamin D status. The second part of that is that Phosphorus tends to be on the other team, so the more phosphorus you get, the more vitamin D and calcium you need, the less phosphorus you get, the less vitamin D and calcium you need, again, within a certain window, so you need phosphorus, you can't, you can't bring phosphorus down to zero and, and, then, and, and benefit from that, but you know, after you fulfill your basic requirements, for phosphorus. And before you hit some point where you're getting phosphorus toxicity, there's a very big window where the more you get, the more you're antagonizing vitamin D and calcium, the less you get, the less you're antagonizing them. And the reason that's so relevant is that almost everyone in our society gets more phosphorus than they need. And in fact, if you look at the RDA for phosphorus, it's around 700 milligrams. People, The average American is getting over five or about 500 milligrams of phosphorus from packaged processed foods that have it added as an additive that is not labeled. So the average American is almost doubling, not quite doubling, but almost doubling their needs for phosphorus through unlabeled food additives, through the consumption of packaged foods. So even though we have a tremendous amount of data on our calcium needs from teenagers and from older people and from middle-aged adults and from young adults, even though we have this voluminous data set, you could argue that most of those people did not or you know are are operating on this background of relatively poor vitamin D status and consuming lots of extra phosphorus from packaged foods. To make things worse, when they've done studies on how different sources of phosphorus impact your vitamin D and calcium requirements, those studies seem to indicate that the phosphorus additives and packaged foods are dramatically worse than, the, than other sources of phosphorus. For example, what are the markers you would use to look in someone's blood at either not getting enough vitamin D or calcium or getting too much phosphorus is a rise in parathyroid hormone. Parathyroid hormone goes up when in either of those situations, not enough D and calcium or too much phosphorus. And if you feed someone meat, which is very rich in in phosphorus, it doesn't do anything to their parathyroid hormone. If you feed someone cheese, which is high in both phosphorus and calcium, it decreases their parathyroid hormone, which is a good thing. And if you feed someone Packaged foods that have phosphorus additives, it increases their parathyroid hormone, which is a bad thing. So you have processed foods bad, meat neutral, dairy products good in terms of affecting the balance of vitamin D calcium and phosphorus so The, the reasons for that is it probably has something to do with the forms of phosphorus that add, are added to the food they might be much more absorbable than the phosphorus from natural food. But it's also because meat, for example, has amino acids that help you absorb calcium better from your diet. And so meat isn't just providing phosphorus, it's also facilitating better calcium status when it's consumed in the context of a mixed diet. And then dairy products are actually providing that calcium. So even though the phosphorus can antagonize the calcium, they're providing enough calcium to not only make up for the phosphorus but to put you in an even better situation than you would be than you would be without those dairy products. So when we look at the calcium requirements it you you can make, there's a gray area because we don't have a lot of data taking people who eat plenty of animal protein plenty of dairy products get really good vitamin D status and don't have any packaged foods in the diet we don 't we don't have a lot of data in those people, and it 's probably the case that calcium needs are lower in those people it 's just i don 't know how much lower they are so my opinion is you know shoot for the thousand milligram mark you can probably get away with consuming um, with consuming maybe six or seven hundred milligrams of calcium if you optimize everything else um, but, this, but that kind of comes back to that principle we were talking about before, where you want to shoot for this baseline, and the more you deviate from that baseline, the more you have to optimize everything else. If you shoot for the 1,000 milligrams of calcium, you can get away with maybe not having your vitamin D fully optimized, not having your phosphorus fully optimized, and so on. Um, whereas if you make the choice that I'm going to ignore the 1,000 milligram target and I'm by choice going to eat less than that, say 600 or 700 milligrams of calcium, then um, then all of a sudden it, beco- it sort of behooves you to make sure that you are optimizing those other factors because you've made yourself more vulnerable by deliberately not hitting one of the targets. And then I had mentioned pregnancy and lactation before. So Um, The RDA is not adjusted upward for pregnancy and lactation. But one thing that we do know is that in the third trimester of pregnancy, there is an enormous investment of vitamin D and calcium into the building of the fetal skeleton. And there are some studies showing that vitamin D levels in certain populations will drop to zero in the third trimester of pregnancy. And that's, remember, building the fetal skeleton is requiring calcium. And you're meeting the needs for calcium using vitamin D to help you metabolize the calcium correctly. And so when you look at a study showing that the vitamin D levels drop precipitously in the third trimester of pregnancy, and in some cases to zero, that's kind of telling you, you need both members of that team. Like if you had gotten more vitamin D, that wouldn't have happened, but also if you'd gotten more calcium, which is obviously the raw material that you're building the fetal skeleton with, then that also would have helped preserve that vitamin D in the mother. And then in lactation, you know that you're delivering milk to the nursing infant that has enormous amounts of calcium in it. That is coming at your. That is coming at the expense of the mother, and so I think that the same principle is true there. The, the vitamin D status and the calcium status of the mother are going to be more important at those times because she's digging into her own supplies at her own expense to support the growth of the uh, of the infant. You know, basically the growth of the of the fetal skeleton beginning in the third trimester, and then the growth of the infant all the way through the end of lactation. And so, I would say that you probably should increase that um, that calcium requirement expressed as three glasses of milk worth of calcium for um, most adults for for teenagers going through puberty. And four for uh, men over 70, women over 50. And I would add to that pregnant and nursing mothers, I would suggest go up to four as well.
1: Got it. Okay. Very cool. And actually, this is a perfect segue because after our conversation at the event we both attended, I changed up my lunch a little bit. So canned sardines are A very common lunch for me for a lot of reasons. Obviously, the calcium and the canned bones being one of them, um, often with something like avocado. But I've also started adding nutritional yeast. And that's something that you mentioned and talked about in relation to vitamin B5, which I feel like very few people really know much about at all, much less fully understand. So can you walk us through a little bit of the explanation of vitamin B5 and why it's so important?
0: Yeah. So vitamin B5 is also known as pantothenic acid. And what's ironic, or I think it's ironic, um, the name pantothenic acid comes from the Greek word pandos, which means everything, everywhere. And it's, it's literally named after the fact that it is so common and widely distributed in foods that it is impossible to become deficient in it. And I think this is deeply ironic because there's actually you could make a very strong case that most people don't get enough of it. And yes, it is found everywhere in foods. But if you look at where it's found, I mean, if you imagine the scale of foods as a six foot person, then nutritional yeast is at the top of that six foot person in terms of how much B5 it contains. Liver is like at chest level on that person. And then basically, uh, you know, a handful of, of other organ meats are, are at waist level in that person. And then most other foods are like at knee level on that person. So yes, it's found in everything, but there are a very small handful of foods that are dramatically higher than everything else and liver, a handful of other organ meats and nutritional yeast are really at the very top of that list. Um, So, if you eat liver, heart, and nutritional yeast, you're just getting tremendously more B5 than anyone else. Now, the, the conventional response to that would be, well, it doesn't matter because no one is deficient in B5. But the evidence that no one is deficient is rooted in early studies where they tried to induce deficiency in people, and the results were basically as follows. When they gave people a zero B5 diet over the course of nine weeks, the only thing that they could show was that the people were very fatigued and they were complaining about fatigue, and they appeared to the researchers to have lost all their enthusiasm for life. And so they look at that and they say, well, we didn't really produce profound clinical deficiency here because what they also found was that if you gave them a zero B5 diet and you gave them an antagonist that prevents you from turning B5 into the cofactors of enzymes that it's needed for in the human body, then you can produce much more significant clinical results. So those people don't just get fatigued and lose their enthusiasm. They also get personality changes that are very negative. So they start fighting with each other all the time. They become very petty and childlike. They start to get tingling in their hands and feet. A lot of them, the people who are given the antagonists, a lot of them would be constantly wringing their hands, shaking their hands to try to restore normal feeling or just stomping their feet on the floor to try to restore normal feeling. They would spend often spend all day in bed not wanting to get out. They would have gastrointestinal disturbances that start farting more. They would sometimes get vomiting or nausea, a lot of things like that. And So the, the research community is looking at this and saying like, geez, nine weeks of zero B5 in the diet, all we could produce was fatigue and loss of enthusiasm. We didn't get anywhere near. The clinical effects of giving them this antagonist. And, you know, on the surface, if you're not paying close enough attention, you can kind of think like, yeah, that's not a very strong effect, uh, just fatigue, right? Like, and it's kind of nonspecific, you know, like lots of people are fatigued. It could be for lots of different reasons. But I look at that and I'm like, you only fed the diet for nine weeks, you know? What if they fed that diet, the zero to B5 diet, for 18 weeks? or you know 24 weeks maybe they would have produced all those severe neurological problems that they that they produced with giving people the antagonist 9 weeks just isn't a lot of time and a, a counter argument would be like well yeah but no one out there is eating a zero b5 diet everyone's getting b5 and it's like yeah that's true but if you can produce in 9 weeks if you can produce fatigue and loss of enthusiasm then what if you produce like a 30% deficit in pantothenic acid instead of a 0B5 diet? Presumably, you're going to get the same fatigue and loss of enthusiasm if you triple the time that you're feeding the 30% deficit diet, right? So like 9 times 3 is 27. So 27 weeks, 30 weeks of, of a 30% deficit then you should be able to produce fatigue and loss of enthusiasm and i don't know exactly how many longer weeks it would take to produce tingling in the hands and feet or to produce extra farting or to produce wanting to lay in bed all day but you know maybe it's like three years of feeding a 30% deficit in b5 you start to produce those things what i do know is that the signs and symptoms of b5 deficiency aren't all that uncommon like farting is pretty common you know nausea is pretty common even tingling in the hands and feet is pretty common and for god's sake being childish and quarreling too much are pretty common you know so it's like it's, it's the the conventional idea is like th- there's so much B5 in so many foods that no one is running deficient And it's been almost impossible to produce any meaningful deficiency in humans. But I think actually you could say, well, it's extremely common to not consume the richest dietary sources of B5, like nutritional yeast, liver, and heart. And it's extremely common to get fatigue. It's extremely common to get problems with not feeling enthusiastic enough about life. It's fairly common for people, some people to want to lay in bed all day. It's pretty common for people to be... Um, emotionally vulnerable, uh, petty, childish, quarrelsome, it's, it's even not that uncommon. There's a lot of people out there whose hands and feet are tingling. Like even that isn't that uncommon. So I think part of the, part of the problem here is that there, there, we've just been working under this assumption that it's not a problem, that we don't, it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So because we know that no one's deficient, when they do studies of like let's let's see what the blood levels of pantothenic acid are in pregnant teenagers and they just do these random studies they they'll collect data on the blood um the blood value or the urinary value um but they don't they don't give questionnaires that say like how often do you feel fatigued or like how enthusiastic do you feel about life or do your hands and feet ever tingle? Or do you have any gastrointestinal problems? And so they don't ask those because they assume that no one is clinically deficient. And then because they assume that, then when they collect data about blood levels and urine levels, we don't have any data that any of them correlate with any of those symptoms. And it sort of feeds into this belief that no one is running low in B5. So I I think that you could you could certainly make a case that if you consume foods that are rich in B5, like liver, heart, and nutritional yeast, and you feel like you have more energy and less fatigue, then uh, you know, or, or any of those other symptoms start resolving, then I would consider that positive evidence for you as an individual person that you needed more B5 and that you got more B5. And one of the things... That we were talking about in the conversation that you mentioned, and I I don't, you know, you can just sort of like turn me up or down at the level of detail that you want to go into. There's there's good reason to think that the B5 in food is superior than to the B5 in supplements, and that means that the number of people not getting enough B5 is even larger because there might be a lot of people who aren't eating nutritional yeast, liver, or heart, but they are consuming multivitamins that have pantothenic acid in them, or they are consuming B-complexes that have pantothenic acid in them. But the thing is, 85% of the B5 in food is in the form of 4-phosphopantothene and coenzyme A. People who have studied biochemistry at any level probably remember coenzyme A or CoA uh, as the thing that holds on to two carbon units or acetyl groups to make acetyl-CoA that lies at the intersection of all anabolic and catabolic metabolism. People who have not taken any biochem or probably have, have no idea what I'm talking about, um, but probably no one remembers talking about 4 So uh, Let's leave it at coenzyme A and 4 are enzymatic cofactors that are absolutely critical to our metabolism. They're the things that we need in our body from B5. And when we eat food, we get 85% of our B5 as 4-phosphopantethene and coenzyme A, the forms that we need. Although a lot of that is digested as it's absorbed, the process of going from pantothenic acid to 4-phosphopantethene or coenzyme A, is very energy intensive and very complicated. It takes five energy intensive steps to build your way up from pantothenic acid to 4-phosphopantothene and coenzyme A. And when you digest and absorb food, you actually break it down into the all, that whole diversity of potential breakdown products. So you do get pantothenic acid, you get 4-phosphopantothene. You might absorb some coenzyme A. It's not quite clear. You also just get pantothene instead of 4-phosphopantothene, you just get a bunch of different things. And when you absorb it, probably 70 or 80% of what you absorbed is more easily made into 4-phosphopantothene or coenzyme A than pantothenic acid is. So probably when you eat food, you could say that you are getting, well, let's put it this way. We know that there are very, very rare genetic defects in the ability to turn pantothenic acid into 4-phosphopantethene and coenzyme A, and that in all the the experimental models of that very rare disease, feeding 4-phosphopantethene or coenzyme A will cure it. And so if we take that as a model, we could say, Maybe if we cared more and we did more research on it, we'd find that 20 or 30% of the population has some genetic polymorphism, meaning variation in their genes, um, in that same enzyme that decreases the activity uh, of the enzymes involved in making that conversion by 20 or 30%, or something like that. That might be a very significant portion of the population where even if they consume the pantothenic acid in the multivitamin or the B complex or the fortified cereal they are at a huge disadvantage to be able to turn that into the forms that we need versus consuming food sources of those nutrients where they come in the prepackaged form that we need that bypass that enzyme that they're not good at using so it's a little speculative but you know just anecdotally like if you, if we were to just poll people who use liver, heart, and and nutritional yeast, and just ask them questions like, "Do you feel less fatigued, or more energetic, or more enthusiastic, or healthier, or whatever after consuming those foods?" Probably a lot. There would be a lot of people who say they do, and so I think you know we need more research to work out the details. But right now, it's it's a, it involves guesswork. But I think a, it is a reasonable guess to say that many people would benefit from consuming food forces food forms of B5 instead of consuming the B5 that's currently available in supplements.
1: And that makes sense too if you think of like those times when they would test it or times when people would be more likely to be more prone to being upset or fatigued or all those things you mentioned could be during the teenage years. I'm thinking early pregnancy, I felt like that quite often, or postpartum, which are all times of increased nutrient demand. And for me, I wasn't eating things like nutritional yeast very much during those times. And if I'm remembering correctly, you also mentioned something about a theory of how this might actually relate to things like teenage hormonal acne. Am I remembering that we were talking about this when you said that?
0: Yeah, I was ju- I was just about to, um, to pull what you just said about the emotional volatility of teenage years back to that. So there is a hypothesis that the reason teenagers become more vulnerable to acne is because Vitamin B5 is needed to synthesize cholesterol, which is needed to synthesize steroid hormones, which include the sex hormones. And because this is a time of hormonal spikes, you need a lot more B5 to make those hormones. That's the hypothesis. And in support of that, there are a number of studies using pantothenic acid both orally and topically. Orally, they they just use straight up pantothenic acid. Topically, they use dexpanthenol, which is a it's vitamin B five that has been modified to be stable in a topical cream. And the combination of the oral pantothenic acid and the topical dexpanthenol is very effective at reducing acne in in just general population teenagers with acne. And what's really interesting about this is that. They're giving the teenagers grams per day of pantothenic acid. Our usual requirement is five milligrams a day. And so we're talking about like, you know, 20 times five is 100 milligrams, times, so 200 times five is 1,000 milligrams. And we're talking about several grams. So we're talking about thousands of times the, the normal requirement of B5 and what's fascinating is that no one knows what the body stores of b 5 are, but it seems that we have somewhere between like 4 and 10 grams of pantothenic acid in our in our bodies and when people consume gram doses of pantothenic acid remember 1 gram is a thousand times our requirement you actually hold on to the bulk of that pantothenic acid you you actually use it it's not You know, most nutrients, like like many B vitamins, if if you took a thousand times what you needed, you just either you wouldn't absorb it or you just pee all of it out. So riboflavin, for example, if you take thousands of milligrams of riboflavin instead of the two to five that you need, uh, your pee is gonna turn neon yellow, and that's just like all of all of what you didn't use is just immediately leaving in the body, leaving the body. And B five, it's totally different. Like the a teenager taking grams of B five a day will suck it up like a vacuum. And so, I believe my working model of interpreting this is that for B five, that five to ten gram, four to ten grams that you have stored in your body, it's not really storage. It's actually like that's what you need to use the B five, and your body will adjust to having grams less than that. But you start to get increasing symptoms as the body pool shrinks. So probably in those people were after nine weeks of zero B5, maybe they had like hundreds of milligrams less B5 and they started to get those early symptoms. And then when they were giving the antagonists, maybe those are the people that had grams less. The teenagers who are, who are both emotionally volatile and getting more acne, who benefit from taking grams of B5 per day. They seem to have very high needs, but it, it seems like they're running grams per day short. Uh, like maybe their body stores of B5 are like 20 or 30% lower than what they need to be. And so at least over the course of weeks, you have to give them very high doses to compensate for that.
1: That's so fascinating to me. And it would seem like nutritional yeast is a relatively safe way to do that. It's a great food source, like you mentioned. It's also just food. So you would probably be less prone to running into issues with that. And one that ironically meets almost all of the dietary philosophies, even for vegans. Are there supplements that are safe for that, that you would consider safe? Because I'm guessing there's a lot of moms with teenagers listening, thinking this might be a really helpful thing for my teenager.
0: Yeah. So their pantothenic acid in gram doses is actually extremely safe. There's a very small percentage of people taking those gram doses that that develop minor G i side effects, but it's it's like it's probably not anything specific to the B5 It's sort of like there's always a small percentage of people who develop g i temporary G i distress from taking massive. Amounts of a sup, of any kind of supplement. It's just that's just sort of like the normal thing you would expect from people taking massive doses of stuff that they don't usually take massive doses of. And so, th- you know, there are other B vitamins that are not safe to take in those gigantic doses. This so this is an example where you want to individualize something. I you know I would never say we should make a blanket statement that all teenagers should be taking three grams of pantothenic acid a day. But what I would say is, like, first look at the diet, and if the diet looks like it doesn't have enough B five in it, improve the natural food sources of B five. And so, a great way to do that would be to include up to three tablespoons per day of unfortified nutritional yeast is a completely natural way to get B five in. Up to two, up to eight ounces of liver per week is a completely natural way to get B five in that comes with a whole host of other nutrients that you would want, and then getting heart into the diet too. I think there's almost no limit on the amount of heart that you could include. You could replace, you know, more than the average person would want to of their meat with heart and not run into any toxicity problems with any of the nutrients. And you'd get a, a lot of extra B5 from that. So, you know, take that approach first and see where you get. And then if the acne doesn't go away. Keep in mind that, this, that the studies that have been successful have used several grams per day of pantothenic acid with topical creams. So I think at that point, you want to say, okay, well, this, getting the food sources in didn't work. Let's see if this works. And I think it's pretty s- safe to experiment on a trial and error basis with high dose B5 in the form of pantothenic acid.
1: Got it. That's so helpful. This episode is sponsored by Fabletics, affordable, cute, and versatile athletic wear. Founded by Kate Hudson, this brand has hundreds of original and cute styles of athletic wear. They're also revolutionizing how the athletic wear industry works by helping women find gear that fits them perfectly. And here's how it works. After you take a super quick 60-second style quiz, you receive a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own style and body type. This takes the guesswork out of what styles are most suitable for you. And before I forget, Fabletics is offering listeners of this podcast an incredible deal that you won't want to miss. You can get two pairs of leggings for only $24, which is a $99 value when you sign up to be a VIP. And that's literally half the price of just one sports bra from some of the other brands. And you get Two pairs of leggings. Just go to Fabletics.com forward slash Wellness Mama to take advantage of the deal now. Again, that's F A B L E T I C S dot com forward slash Wellness Mama to get two pairs of leggings for only $24. They also offer free shipping on all orders over $49. They do have international shipping available and there's no commitment when you purchase your first order. Plus, they have a workout guarantee meaning that you can sweat it out in those clothes for 45 days. And if they don't perform, you can return them for a full refund. This podcast is brought to you by Genexa, the first ever and only line of organic and non-GMO medicines. Their patented system lets them create medicines that don't have artificial dyes or fillers, and that are free of preservatives and all common allergens. I pretty much keep their entire line on hand, as they have something for everything from colds and flu, to leg cramps and pain, to allergies and sleep problems. And the best part is, my kids love the taste of their organic formula, and I love that they are effective and free of the junk. You can shop their whole line of organic and non-GMO medicines by going to Genexa.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness for 20% off your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A.com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness for 20% off of your order. I literally could talk to you for 12 hours, but I will try not to do that on this podcast today. But two more specific questions, the first being about niacin, because I don't know if it's been in the news more, but I'm getting a whole lot more emails and comments related to niacin and whether it's safe and what doses. So I know that you cover this in both your nutrition mini chat course that we'll link to. Um, People can learn from Facebook Messenger and also in your cheat sheet. But can you give us kind of an overview of niacin?
0: Yeah. So, though the the safety overview of niacin is that in food doses, niacin is completely safe. But there are various reasons why people take doses that are much higher in foods, and they're taking different forms of it. So, um, if you go to the if you ask a nutritionist, the word niacin refers to all forms of niacin and niacin precursors. Um, But if you go to the supplement store and you get a bottle that says niacin, in the supplement world, niacin refers to nicotinic acid. And nicotinic acid is what is used to lower cholesterol levels. And people are generally taking, um, you know, th- the average person probably needs around 20 milligrams per day of niacin. People who are taking niacin for cholesterol are taking at least 300 milligrams a day, usually, and often taking, um, Three, five, seven grams, depending, and a gram is a thousand milligrams. So um, three, four, five thousand milligrams, um, depending on how high their cholesterol is and what's working. And then there are people who are taking slow release or extended release of the same type, because the because that form of niacin causes flushing, which is highly uncomfortable. And so there are slow-release and extended-release forms of niacin to, to decrease the flushing response. And then there's also niacinamide, which is another name for nicotinamide. And some people take that on the basis – like there, some people may misguidedly take that as a way to lower cholesterol levels, but that doesn't cause the flushing response and also it doesn't cause the cholesterol levels to come down. And then there's another category of people taking – niacin, and that's people in the anti-aging community. So there's a lot of interest in the fact that the thing we make from niacin, NAD, decreases with age, it decreases with disease, and it is very important for DNA repair and for allowing us to age gracefully. And so the anti-aging community is, is all over it. And the forms that people are taking to increase their NAD for anti-aging purposes are usually nicotinamide riboside, or uh, sometimes called NR, or nicotinamide mononucleotide, usually called NMN. And all of those forms of niacin will have the potential at high enough doses to cause liver toxicity, and they cause liver toxicity by sapping up methyl groups. And methyl groups are, are one-carbon units that are part of the methylation system. And when people talk about vitamin B12 and folate and choline, they're usually talking about those nutrients in terms of their ability to support the methylation system. So niacin at high, at high doses will be detoxified with methylation, and at high enough doses will rob you of methyl groups. So it's basically acting anti- vitamin B12, antifolate, anticholine. choline And if the dose is high enough, it's, that can cause liver toxicity. But at a much lower dose, that can start giving you other problems. So when you start sapping methyl groups, the earliest thing that you would expect would be a decrease in creatine synthesis. Creatine is most famous for its ability to support a muscular physique and athletic performance but it's also been shown in women with major depressive disorder to cause a dramatic improvement in depression and we also know it's needed for digestion to make sperm swim up the vaginal canal for you know vision and hearing and all kinds of things so if your creatine synthesis is lowered you might expect depression as a result you might expect feeling more weak or feeling like you you don't have the same exercise capacity and then methylation also is needed to regulate your dopamine levels in a way that keeps your mind more flexible and fluid so when you have when you don't have enough methylation of dopamine then you tend to be more re- mentally rigid you tend to be too mentally stable, like it can help you focus, but it can also make you ruminate on negative thoughts or thought patterns or emotions. So if you feel like things, you know, like a healthy person, if you have a negative thought come into your mind, the healthy reaction is just to ignore it and let it go away. But for someone who has their mind is too sticky that thought just like as soon as it comes in it gets stuck there and they can't get rid of it and they just ruminate on that thought and it creates a vicious cycle of anxiety or depression or you know whatever the negative aspect of that thought is so that too having a brain that's too sticky like that or depression or weakness or poor exercise performance are all things that you could expect from sapping your methyl groups at levels that are way 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 below what would cause liver toxicity so every single form of niacin has this property and what i would recommend is that you either either you moderate the dose of niacin and take it in the context of a very methyl rich diet so if you're consuming it with a lot of animal protein with a lot of choline with a lot of folate and b12 you you might be able to get away with saying like, you know, I can handle taking 300 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside and it's it's no problem. But if your diet is not so high in methyl donors or if you're taking a larger dose than that, I would strongly recommend taking it with trimethylglycine or TMG, which is a methyl donor. And you, you could... You can also pair it with other methyl donors, but I just think the math is way easier to keep track of with TMG because of um, the way that it's, the way that it's metabolized. It generally, you can count on you know one molecule giving one methyl group in the methylation system, so it just makes the math really easy. And so if you take that approach, what you would want to do is take um, if you're using niacin, also known as nicotinic acid, or niacinamide, also known as nicotinamide, You want a one-to-one dose. So for every 500 milligrams of niacin or niacinamide, take 500 milligrams of TMG. And if you're using NR, also known as nicotinamide riboside, or NMN, also known as nicotinamide mononucleotide, you want a half the dose of TMG. Let me put it another way: Uh, for every 500 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide, you would want 250 milligrams of TMG, In other words, half the dose of the niacin form you would get in TMG. And even though I said before, it's probably, you can probably get away with it um, without doing that if your diet is very rich in methyl donors. It's kind of a good insurance policy, like there's no harm in taking <laughs> a little TMG. So I think the easier rule of thumb is just for everyone to, to take it that way. And then on top of that, if you are taking high doses of niacin also known as nicotinic acid, for the purpose of lowering your blood lipids, you should do that for safety. And you should take half the dose of the niacin as glycine. And that's because that particular form of niacin is also detoxified with glycine. And if you do that, for example, if you're taking 1,000 milligrams of niacin, you take 500 milligrams of glycine. You could also get that from collagen or gelatin by tripling the dose. So a gram and a half of collagen or a gram and a half of gelatin would provide roughly that half a gram of glycine.
1: That's so helpful, and I'll make sure I put some of those notes in the show notes. Um, I feel like we have so much more that I want to cover, so hopefully I can talk you into a round two one day, but to wrap up on a practical note, I would love to hear, obviously, of course, everything is personalized, and that's why you have created these resources to help people figure out their own, like what they need for their own lives, but I'm curious what your day looks like or what some of your normal meal rotations look like, knowing what you know about nutrition and what we need to try to include in our diets, what does that practically look like for you?
0: So my diet, my diet tends to go in waves of 3 or 4 months where I change, where I I change it up as my goals are changing and as I get sick of whatever I'm eating but most recently my typical diet will involve I'll get up and I'll have fresh juice made from a variety of different vegetables and then for breakfast well actually for most of my meals they basically involve three components so one would be legumes and i just rotate different lentils and other some beans i don't tolerate that well but i just rotate the different lentils and beans that i do tolerate well in that category and then i add to that mixed vegetables and generally that's a rotation of it's usually like a bunch of different vegetables mixed together, uh, cooked in the InstaPot, and then just like what that bunch is, just gets rotated with each batch. So in the fridge, I have you know a, a glass case of uh, beans and I have another glass case of vegetables, and I just mix the two together. And then I have some kind of protein that could be meat or it could be eggs. So usually, in my fridge I have a stash of um, soft or hard boiled eggs. And I have a stash of pre cooked meat of some type, and that meat just goes in a rotation. Like I'll eat chicken for a while, I'll eat red meat for a while, uh, just keep switching it up over time. And I'll take some of that, and then I'll take you know just some spices and flavorings, tomato sauce or salsa, mix it together, reheat it, and and eat it. And that's like the base of most of my meals. And then added to that, I'll have a couple pieces. A couple servings of fruit a day, usually, and right now I my gut seems to do really well with less fructose. So I'm actually rotating sweet peppers, like I have red, green, orange, and yellow sweet peppers that are ma- making my main fruit. So, like every meal, I'll just like cut up half a pepper, just slice it up and, and eat it raw. And then there are some other fillers, like I I usually end the day with some snacks. And I had been experimenting in the past with with snacks that are kind of like dessert, but they don't have, you know, they're just like sweetened with dates and they have coconut and sesame seeds and whatever. In the interest of lowering fructose, I'm replacing those with dry roasted salted nuts as my main snack food. And um, that's mainly what I've been eating for the last six months or so. Right now, I'm modifying that a bit by uh, doing a low FODMAP diet. So I'm replacing the beans with, with white rice at the moment. I am using nutritional yeast and I am using oyster capsules and liver capsules as some of my main nutritional supplements. Although my plans for the future are to experiment with going back to different ways of incorporating fresh liver Uh, possibly. I've never done the frozen bits of liver thing. I might try that. And I also want to try working more heart into my diet because I haven't been eating much heart. And I've generally felt best in my life when I've eaten um, like an average of maybe an ounce of liver every day. And then most of my protein coming from heart and less of it coming from muscle meats, just like a little bit on the side. So I'm going to experiment with that in the near future.
1: Awesome. I love it. So practical and uh, really helpful, just I think that's always really applicable to people to hear real life examples of how those nutrients can come into play. And like I said, I could talk to you for so much longer. So hopefully you'll be willing to do a round two one day. Um, But I know how busy you are and I really appreciate your time in sharing today what you've shared.
0: Awesome. It was great to be here. I'll definitely be back for round two.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast.